There is a, by now, very well-known piece of psychological research, uh, a piece of research done by a team of researchers named Christopher Chabri and Daniel Simons. Chabri and Simons study attention and perception, how what we are paying attention to affects what we see or what we don't see. This piece of research, which I think probably most of you have come across at some point, uh, I would wager most of us have, uh, involves a video where the participants in the study are asked to, to watch this video, and over about 20 seconds, what you see is a number of individuals, six people in a small space, all sort of milling about, passing two basketballs in between them. And it's very kind of confused, jumbled mess. And these two basketballs are changing hands. And as you watch this video, first you're told that your job is to count the number of passes that happen with one of these balls. So you're watching this sort of confusing scene, two balls, trying to keep track of one ball. And as you do this, you're paying very close attention. Over about 20 seconds, you're counting very quick passes. And like most of us, you get to the end of the video, and you have counted correctly. 15 passes, but what you have missed is that midway through the video, a person wearing a gorilla suit has walked through the scene, thumped their chest, and then walked off. If you don't believe me, go and show this to someone who's never seen it before. You don't see it. It's a pretty hilarious thing to watch someone realize that they have missed this. Uh, if you want to do this, do this with your friends, or you can enjoy the reaction of one of our good friends who saw this video this week. I caught those photos surreptitiously. He didn't know, but he was a good sport, and he let me show them to you this morning. You can, you can take it down now. Seeing is a tricky business. What we see and what we don't see is often uh, shocking to us. And it's extra shocking because we often think about sight as a primarily passive endeavor. Most of our senses we think of as passive. I see because I just opened my eyes. I look out and I see people, sanctuary, Dave Friedrich. I don't have to try to do that. It's a passive sense. But what research like this shows us, as well as lots of other research, is that seeing is far from passive. What we perceive or what we do not perceive has to do with what we're expecting to see, what we want to see, what we're prepared to see or not to see, how we're paying attention. What's true of our physical capacity to see, I think, is even more true of our spiritual sight. If we want to know what God is up to in the world, if we want to see him, we should be asking the questions, what am I paying attention to? What am I expecting to see? What do I want to see? What don't I want to see? We're walking through this sermon series in the season of Epiphany where these are the questions we're asking. Epiphany, as we've been talking about, is about the revealing of the light of Christ in our hearts and in the world. And as that revealing goes forward, the truth is that sometimes we see and sometimes we don't. And we should be curious about why that is. What is it in us that causes us to see or not to see? These questions are core to the gospel text that we're going to be looking at this morning out of Luke 2. Uh, Luke 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 22 through, through 40. 
Um, if you're following along in the lectionary, recognize that this is not actually the lectionary text for today. We've actually brought forward the feast day texts. This Friday is a special feast, and we've brought forward those texts so that we can contemplate them together in preparation for a special feast that's happening on Friday. That feast is called the Presentation of Christ in the Temple, the Feast of the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. And it's a very important moment in our Epiphany Tide journey, a moment that asks us to think about how we see or don't see the Lord. In this text that we just heard read by Anna, we see Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple 40 days after his birth for the ritual purifications that were required by the law. They're being faithful Israelites. And they bring Jesus to both offer purification for Mary 40 days after childbirth and also to present Jesus as the firstborn son in their family. And as they bring Jesus in, these two mysterious characters sort of jump onto the scene, Simeon and Anna. They're so surprising. It seems like Simeon runs up and almost takes Jesus without even asking and begins to offer prophecy over him. Simeon and Anna don't miss Jesus. They see him. They see him clearly. They see the fullness of what he, it means, seemingly without precursor, seemingly only from what the Spirit has enlightened for them. We have a lot to learn from Simeon and Anna, and in particular, I want to direct our thoughts toward three aspects of their posture, three things that I think allow them to have this seeing moment, to really see the truth. Three things. First, their desire for God, what they want to see. Second, how they expect God to show up. And finally, what they are prepared to see. So if you want there, if you have a Bible, Luke 2, verses 20 through 22 through 40, I encourage you to follow along. The first point of what we want to see, this might seem obvious, but core to our seeing, spiritually and physically, core to our seeing is what we want to see, what we desire to see. My children love graham crackers. I mean, they love graham crackers. And if you want to eat a graham cracker in my house, without my children seeing it, you have to be very careful. Because when it comes to graham crackers, their sight and sense of hearing is superhuman. <laughs> if there is even a little bit of graham cracker showing out of your hand, if there is even the slightest crunch of a graham cracker, they will know and they will ask you for a graham cracker. Simeon and Anna don't just want to see the Lord. This desire, this longing to see the Lord has taken up and defined their lives. They want to see the Lord in a way that feels like a need. They can say along with Psalm 84 that we've heard read already, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. They can say along with Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. They long to know and to behold the Lord, to see him, to have his life manifest in their lives. Hear the longing in Simeon's voice and, and actually the fulfillment of his longing as he says, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is a man speaking whose deepest desire is being fulfilled. Anna's life also shows the depth of this longing. We don't hear Anna's words, but her manner of life, the way that she has lived her life, shows this depth of desire. It says in the text that her entire life is taken up with worship and fasting and prayer, night and day in the temple, all the time. This is the way her life is formed. And not just for one moment, not just for a season, but for decades. She's widowed in her, in her young years, and she's now 84. She's been doing this for decades. Do you long for the living God? That's the question that Anna and Simeon's example asks us to consider. Do you long to see him? Do you want to see him and behold him, to have his light manifest in your life? so much that you are willing to have your life reshaped, reoriented. Of course, none of us can answer that with a complete and perfect yes. Christians are always growing in our need for renovation of the heart, for a deeper desire to see and to know the Lord. A a renovation of the heart that continues. But that in completeness of that work shouldn't ever allow us to settle for believing that this isn't something that should be growing in our lives. We should expect in our Christian journey that over time we are growing in a deeper and deeper desire for the Lord, that felt need to see him manifest in our lives. As we grow in that, I think the thing that we all realize is that in order to do that, in order for that growth to happen in our lives, we have to resist other loves. If that desire is going to flourish like a plant, we have to take the weeds out. We have to resist other kinds of loves. Sometimes uh, biblical characters, I think, can sort of seem like mythic characters. They become two-dimensional because we think of them as just sort of the way they are. Simeon and Anna's exemplary way of life is just sort of the way it is. We don't think of them as real characters who faced real other temptations. They had to, in order to live this way, had to resist other real loves that were competing for their attention. One commentator that I read in in preparing for this morning put it this way, the long-awaited but unfulfilled messianic hope led some in Judaism to compromise with the Romans, others to militant opposition of the same, others to utopian dreams, and still others to flight, separation, seclusion, and resignation. Simeon and Anna follow a less celebrated but more difficult course. They wait in faith. Their steadfast courage to await God's promise rather than, hear this, rather than take refuge in spiritual counterfeits results in their seeing in the baby Jesus the dawn of God's salvation. We have to consider the very real-life possibility that if they had allowed other things to take their hearts, other ways to lead them, they wouldn't have been there that day. They wouldn't have been present to see the glory of the Lord. But they were. They resisted those other loves. They allowed the love of, Jesus, of, of the Lord 
to be manifest in their hearts so that they lived a certain way. Of course, what we're talking about is idolatry. Idolatry is whenever something else threatens the place that only God should hold in our hearts. And idolatry is, is a deadly serious thing. Christians are right in saying that idolatry is the central threat to our life with God. But I think we should also see that idolatry is also ridiculous. There's a way that in a holy way we need to laugh at idolatry. When we step back and look at it, there is a ridiculousness to the idea that something else could actually succeed in taking and fulfilling the central longing of my heart. It's ridiculous to think that fame or career success or money or pleasure, entertainment or food could satisfy me. There's a, a story that I came across uh, a little while ago that I think really exemplifies this, this kind of humor or ridiculousness in our idolatry. Uh, James Sullivan, James E. Sullivan, was a prominent figure in the long-distance running community around the turn of the 20th century, so early 1900s. He was um, a key figure in the revitalization of the modern Olympic tradition. And in 1904, he was the chief organizer of the Olympic Games that were held in St. Louis. And as chief organizer of the Olympic Games, one of his key jobs was to um, lay out, organize the uh, Olympic marathon course. So he had to lay out and, and organize the Olympic marathon course for that year. And that would have all been well and good, except that James E. Sullivan had a pet theory about what made for good marathon running. And that pet theory is what he called intentional dehydration. James E. Sullivan believed in his core that what, what it took to run a good marathon was not drinking water or, or eating. It would have been bad enough, but uh, on that particular year in St. Louis, the marathon on that day, the, the, the temperature was around 90 degrees, and the course was over an entirely unpaved course, so there was dust swirling in the air the entire race. There was one water station at the middle of the course. As you can imagine, uh, it was carnage on the course. Less than half of the racers finished the race. People were dropping out left and right, fainting on the sidelines. Um, one man had to be rushed to the hospital for immediate emergency surgery to take the dust out of his esophagus. It was terrible. Thomas Hicks, who was the winner that day, he finished in a time that was more than 30 minutes slower than any other marathon, Olympic marathon winning time. Thomas Hicks suffered enormously throughout the second half of the race. He literally was begging his support team for water, which they refused him. Instead, they gave him raw eggs, brandy, <laughs> and strychnine. Which, if you don't know, is, yes, the key ingredient to rat poison. <laughs> Raw eggs, brandy, and strychnine. We were made for the cool, clear water of the living God. And we're out there running our race on raw eggs, rat poison, and brandy. That's the sum of it. 
That's the ridiculousness of our idolatry. We actually try to fill ourselves with these other things when what we need is the cool, clear water of the living God, the revelation of him in our lives, to see him. That's what we need. But correctly oriented desire isn't enough. It's not enough just to want and to love and to long for that seeing in our lives. That longing has to be channeled in a particular way. It has to be run along a particular course. And we see this in Simeon and Anna's life. It's not just that they long to see the Lord, but they have also followed the wisdom of God about the way the Lord has promised to show up. So they want to see him, but they've also listened to the Lord about the ways that he has promised to show up. It's kind of like train tracks. Sometimes we're like people who were on the other side of town from where the train tracks are, and we're going, where's the train? Where is it? It's at the train tracks. In our spiritual lives, there are train tracks. There are ways that God has promised to show up ways that God has promised to reveal himself. And if we're wise and we long to see him, we need to go to the train tracks. We need to spend time there. Notice it in Anna and Simeon. Where are they? They're in the temple. The temple was the place that the Lord had promised to dwell in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people of God, for for them, the promise that the Lord would dwell with them was embodied in the temple reality. This was where the Lord was to be encountered. Jews of Jesus' day, Simeon and Anna's day, lived with that promise, that promise that the Lord would be with them. They, They lived in a tension with that promise. Because during the Babylonian exile, so centuries before, the prophet Ezekiel had seen, this, this prophecy is, is, this vision is recorded in Ezekiel 10, he had seen the presence of Yahweh in judgment depart from the temple. So this promise for God to be with them in Ezekiel 10, they had seen in judgment the Lord actually depart from their presence. And so Jews of Jesus' day longed to see the presence of Yahweh return to the temple they would have all had memorized the many places in the prophets that promise for this return, including our Old Testament reading today from Malachi. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord will fulfill his promise to be with his people. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus shows up. Maybe not as they were expecting in power and glory as a ruler or something like that, but in a baby, he shows up. They're not just in the place where God has promised to show up, but they're also pursuing the spiritual disciplined life, the spiritually disciplined life that is core to the biblical promise of how God shows up in our lives. It is core to the way that we pay attention the way we make ourselves available to see the Lord. Anna, again, is said to be worshiping and fasting and praying all the time. Simeon, three times in this text, is said to be in the spirit. This is a posture of prayer, a posture of paying attention. Some commentators have even said that he's in the temple that day because the spirit has led him to be there. He's a man also steeped in scripture. If you look at the prophecy that he speaks over Jesus, it's just 
dripping with biblical language, biblical language from Isaiah and other prophets. He is a student of scripture. I wonder if you're at the train tracks. How's that going in your life? Are you there regularly? Are you spending time there? Are you prioritizing your engagement with the temple of the Lord? The New Testament makes clear that the temple of the Lord is now the people of God. Do you prioritize this gathering? Are you engaging here in a way that is deep enough to see the Lord through neighborhood groups, through triads throughout the week, through spiritual friendships? Are you taking in a regular diet of scripture? Are you steeping in it? Are you meditating on it? Are you seeking out other people to study it with? How's your prayer life? I don't say these things to make you feel bad. If there's room to grow there, there's room to grow for all of us. I say this to emphasize the depth and the size of the invitation that is before us. The God who is the one who we need like water has told us where to go and how to practice to be able to see him. You might go to the train track and you don't see the train sometimes. It's not promised that every single time is going to be that mountaintop experience. But there are ways that the Lord has shown up. There are ways that we can receive from Christian tradition down through the ages of how to see the Lord. So we see Anna and Simeon, they have a strong desire. They are wise in engaging the spaces and practices where God has promised to meet them. And finally, they are people who are prepared to see difficult truths. They're people who are prepared to see difficult truths. The final reason that we don't see, that I think is highlighted in this passage, is that we're not ready to see what the light is going to reveal. We know that if the light gets close enough to us, there are going to be things that are revealed. And so we are in a posture of hiding. We don't see, not because God isn't showing up, but because we don't want to see him. We're afraid of what it might show. The word that Simeon speaks over Jesus, he says that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed Jesus' ministry would divide the people of God. Some would follow and obey and trust, and some would reject him. But Simeon goes further. He says that there's a reason for this. The dividing has a purpose, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus is revealed, our hearts are revealed also. When Jesus comes close, the reality of our posture toward God is, is shown to be what it is. And that scares us. We want to keep the light of Christ at arm's length because we know there are dark places that we would rather not deal with. We are all in the same boat. I wonder what you're holding on to in that treasured darkness. I wonder what is there that you can't let go of. You find difficult to think about handing over to Jesus. He wants to take your pride, your anger, 
your sexual rebellion, your substance abuse. He also wants to take the good things that have gotten twisted, your schedule, your career success, your home, your money, your kids. Not to rob you of those things, but to make them all that they were meant to be in your life. He wants to relieve you of the burdens that you're carrying, the things that you're holding on to so tightly. He wants to give you his easy yoke, his good way. I realize that in preaching this passage in this way, I've, I've really focused on the side of what Simeon and Anna are doing. I've focused on the human side. And I've done that because there is a lot of wisdom there. They have a lot of wisdom to offer us about what it means to see. But in preaching in this way, I have emphasized the human side. And I don't want us to miss that there is a God side to this passage as well. I don't want us to miss the good news. Because the truth for all of us is that we are going to try and we are going to struggle and we're going to fail in a lot of ways to fulfill that picture that Simeon and Anna give us. But the good news is that the glory of God has returned to the temple. He's returned to the temple not in the smoke and fire of the Old Testament theophany, but he's returned to the temple in lowly, humble flesh. Here, the synopsis of this from Hebrews 2, from our, our, got from our New Testament reading. Since therefore the children, us, since we share in flesh and blood weakness, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able, he is ready, he wants to help you. He wants to help all of us. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see in you, in your incarnation, in your death, would you help us to see you and to love you? Lord Jesus, would you help us to see you and learn to trust, learn to go to you, learn to know that you want to hold us in the secret hours of prayer, in solitude, that you want us to come to you. Lord Jesus, would you help us to know that you want to take away the things that are weighing us down, the things that we were never meant to carry. Lord Jesus, we long to see you. Help us. Amen.